Welcome to the Deeper Into Movies podcast. My name is Stephen T. Handley. I'm the founder and lead creator of Deeper Into Movies. We're a pop-up cinema based in London and New York. Today in the podcast, I'm joined by two-time Palm d'Or winner, Ruben Ostland. Ruben won for both The Square, which is a masterpiece, and his new movie, Triangle of Sadness. This was such an entertaining talk. I think Ruben is so funny and so unique and singular in his view of the world, in filmmaking, and his methods. Listen out for him talking about using a gong on set. That's fucking hilarious. Let's just get into it. This is me and Ruben Osland. Yeah, let's begin. What movies did you watch growing up? What inspired you to start filmmaking? Uh, I was living on a small island uh, outside uh, the city of Gothenburg on the west coast of Sweden. And there was not really much things to do there. Uh, I mean, as a kid, of course, you, you played around and you had fun. But you could also borrow a VHS camera from from the from the commune mm-hmm. from that was like uh, something that, uh, that they provided to the people living on the island so we started to borrow this camera and filming when we were uh, mountain biking and windsurfing uh, and i was also very interested in skiing my mother comes from the northern part of sweden Sweden. So I also started to film um, uh, ski films, to make ski films. And I actually started to work with making ski films. So I was traveling around. At one point, I was traveling around in North America and and in the Alps, filming skiing and, you know, cutting it together with rock music and making half an hour long uh, ski films where the skiers try to do as spectacular things uh, as possible. Uh, so that was my my way into filmmaking. Did you go to film school? Yes. Then uh, after uh, after a couple of years spending time on ski resorts, you know, I felt um, uh, <laughs> it was hard to do something new, and it was hard to develop. And I was a little tired of being in that in that environment. And I applied for a film school in Gothenburg called Akademi Valand Film. That is a three-year directing course where they don't put any difference between documentary filmmaking or fiction filmmaking. You study both when you go to this school. And the teachers on that school, they were very connected to the 60s movement of French cinema, Mm -hmm. uh, the the new wave of of French cinema, uh, where the director should be an auteur. Yeah. Um, And yeah, so that, that I think that shaped me a lot also. And who are your inspirations at that time? At the school, I was inspired of uh, Roy Anderson. Yeah. British filmmaker. He he hadn't done a feature film in many, many years, but 
uh, year 2000, he came out with songs from the second floor. And it was more the approach of Roy Anderson and his producer that uh, inspired me. I love his films also, of course. I have his uh, advertising movies uh, in my backbone since Mm -hmm. I was a kid. I have seen his uh, advertising movies. But uh, their attitude to filmmaking, I I was really inspired of. And in the school, I got to know of Mikkel Haneke. Uh, and his uh, his movie Code Unknown. Yes. And Code Unknown was a big experience for me. Uh, it was very inspiring to see how someone dared to do such a fragmented way of telling a film and challenging the audience and trusting the audience. And, uh, and it's it still is one of my greatest uh, experience of going to the cinema. Seventh Continent is always the film I tell people to go back and watch from Haneke's collection which is yeah just absolutely haunting yeah definitely uh yeah but I I've seen all of his films and I I I really admire his approach of filmmaking and if there's someone that is a master of suspense we we often talk about Hitchcock as the master of suspense but I think that the the kind of suspense that Haneke builds in his films is uh is even even stronger than the suspense of of Hitchcock. Yeah, because Haneke's approach is so there's no suspense music building up. It's just so yeah blank and just so cold that it's almost more sinister that you haven't got that. Yeah, you know your brain watching movies for so long. You you, you know you can sense something's coming if you hear the music building or the editing's getting more frantic. But Haneke is just such a more kind of minimal approach yeah which makes the shocks even more impactful mm. i know him also i i met him uh and uh it was interesting to talk to him because i think he's working a lot in order to not make the films boring yeah and, and that is a, some people would maybe say there's a contradiction if you look at what what his films are dealing with but uh, uh, he, I think he's kind of obsessed of that it should never feel too long or so on. So, I mean, if you don't have the keys of watching a Haneke movie, you probably never will go into the film. You would never really be uh, drawn away by the film. Mm-hmm. But as soon as you have a key of going into his work and understanding like that kind of filmmaking, then you will be able to appreciate it. Where did your sense of comedy come from? What comedy movies were you inspired by? I, I think it maybe comes a little bit from Roy Anderson, maybe Calvary Smecky. Uh, I think that it was uh, a certain kind of trivial uh, situation-based comedy uh, that I got interested in. And actually, I, di- I didn't really have the filmmakers as an inspiration when it came to what scenes I approached. I I was looking for situations in my own life that I had experienced and that I couldn't forget. Uh, So a lot of these experiences that I remembered that someone had told me about or that I had been through, they very often were dealing with a dilemma. Yeah. Uh, They were dealing with like the dilemma of... uh, going on a long uh, bus journey that goes for a long time and someone breaking the curtain 
And then the bus driver is stopping and saying, I won't continue this uh, drive if the one who did this is not admitting. Yeah. And you sit there and you have done something and you're ashamed of it. And the longer it goes before you admit it was you, <laughs> the harder it's going to get. Yes. And that, that is a kind of humor that is, is situation-based. And very often stand-up comedy uses that kind of humor, that you have experienced something and then you're portraying, showing the setup of the situation. And uh, the actions of the characters is coming from uh, dealing with the, the dilemma. And the dilemma is, if you if you break it down, it's basically that the the character have two or more options, but none of them are easy. Yeah. And all of them are going to be painful. So uh, it, almost like a, a, a how to say sociological approach on looking at us. Yes. And uh, not putting blame on the individual, rather say, "Fuck, I was so unlucky, so I ended up in a corner, had to deal with this." That's how Seinfeld used to write that. Larry David and Jerry weren't interested in any shtick or bits or kind of catchphrases. All the scenes came from the writers just telling them about really awkward dates or trying to get into a restaurant or losing tickets to a ball game or the theater and yeah. all these just absurd situations. Yeah, of course. I mean, of course, Seinfeld is, for my generation, at least in Sweden, is something that we are brought up with and that is in our system. And maybe you don't say that that is one of your inspiration sources uh, if someone asks you, but they are uh, just in your blood. And there was a, a review that I read a couple of years ago when someone was saying that I was a combination between Mikkel Haneke and Larry David. And I, like, yeah. I really, I really appreciate that uh, <laughs> that, that, that uh, how to say viewpoint of my yes. feelings. So I was wondering, in your writing process, because what I love about your work is it always seems to spark from a small incident that snowballs into something bigger. So I was, I was wondering, what's the starting point for you? Is it often the incident or the where it leads to, or where, where do you begin on your script writing process? It is a little bit dependent on the character of the project. For example, if you go to Force Majeure, it all started with that situation with the family sitting in on that outdoor restaurant, mm -hmm. watching an avalanche tumbling down the mountain, having a great day, you know, mm -hmm. the father running away. And then it turns out, there was only the snow smoke that reached the restaurant. So he had to go back and face what his actions. Mm -hmm. When you have a situation like this, at least for me, I felt, okay, this is enough to build the whole film around these actions. And um, I quite quickly came up with the idea, okay, let's make a structure around a ski week. Mm -hmm. Mostly when you go to that, to go there for one week and, 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 and ski. Mm, and then when it came to play, in play, um, the producer, Eric Hemmendorf, he showed me a newspaper article where it was this group of young boys that had been robbing other young boys in the center of the city of Gothenburg, where we live. And um, the, the boys were like between 12 and 17 years old or something. And they... Uh, uh, 
and they only had one thing in common and it was that they were black mm-hmm. so we had this like kind of controversial image of five black kids rob- robbing other kids in the center of the city where basically the, the the city's meeting you had from all parts of the society meeting up there and I went through the court cases and and found one specific case that I got very interested in where these robbers didn't didn't strip the victims of their mobile phones and the wallets immediately. They actually had like a cat cat rat game that they were playing out. And then that became like the uh, how to say I, I followed that case quite um, yeah, I used it as an inspiration for for the film. So it very often it is kind of different what the what the point where I decide to make a movie. But one thing that I think is in common with all the different projects is that I feel that there's like a consensus when we discuss things in our society that mm-hmm. I don't agree on. Uh, there's a certain kind of expectations of uh, gender expectations or like how we are talking about prejudice and racism or um how we are talking about for example the way that we were talking about uh sexuality as a currency and uh a beauty as a currency when it came to the me too movement that was a big inspiration when it came to doing uh triangle of sadness but i always looked like for a very personal scene mm-hmm. in these in these projects in order to be able to bring down the thematic and the topic on a, on a very individual le- level where, where we are dealing with it as human beings. Uh, and for example, in, in Triangle Sadness, it's, it's the bill scene, being a man and a woman sitting at a restaurant and who is going to pay the bill and all the kind of gender expectations that is that, that kind of situation is dealing with. So, um, yeah. I wanted to talk about the restaurant scene. There's this incredible scene where the couple have just had dinner. The waiter puts the check down and this huge argument slowly builds over who's going to pay the check, who's going to pick up the tab. And it carries on from the restaurant to the taxi. Yeah. It's simmering down and it blows up again in the hotel and they're about to get into the lift and they're arguing and the lift doors are about to shut and then they open back up and it keeps on going back and forth and it's such an incredible scene the way it spirals from just a check to an argument across a restaurant a cab the hotel and then the bedroom can we talk about that scene well, I think that, uh, first of all, it was something that happened between me and my wife quite early <laughs> in our relationship. So I, I knew the emotional impact it had on me. Uh, and I I remember quite much like how, like how, how it was uh, a roller coaster where you all of a sudden almost becomes friends. And then uh, the fight is on again and you get further away from each other and, and then you get close again. So it was like going like this that evening right. uh, with the fight. And I, w- I was quite true to, to how it played out. You know, we were, 
we were going in the elevator and I reminded her about the 50 euro bill that was on the table. So if she had a plan to pay me back, why she, didn't she give me the 50 euro bill? And she got so angry. And I realized in the moment that I said it, this was something stupid. I should not have said this, you know. Yes. So she takes out her wallet, pushes it down in my shirt, and I freak out. I feel like I uh, like she have castrated me. Like, but so it was so many aspects of of that fight when it comes to how I also connect my own manlyhood to economy and 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 so on. So it's so it basically plays out that that we are separated in the elevator. She goes down, and I'm going to the hotel room. But the corridor is long, so I I have time to regret myself before yeah. I reach the room. Uh, um, yeah so but it, it's one of these things that I have been thinking about since we started this project and I have been telling about it to many people and by telling it over and over again you also get to know on how you're going to direct it yes and you get to know which are the turning points and you get to know like what what you for example that um uh, when she says, I think it's unsexy to talk about money, when he's trying to make peace and he's like, oh, come on, I think, isn't it absurd that it's so hard to talk about money? And she is just puncturing that by saying, I think it's unsexy to talk yes. about money. When, when you talk about this situation with people, you get to know these lines that are really the game changers that is making another turning point and another turning point. And I always look for turning points when I'm, I'm writing writing the script. Or, or telling about this, uh, the setup of the situation. So, for an example, when Yaya says, "I didn't see it," you know, she says, "She says I didn't see the bill when it came on the t- on the table." Right. Yeah. yeah really, you didn't yes. see the turning point because then he's like almost in top of the game. He can't go like question her about that, and then she goes, "Wow," and she's leaving, and then he's like, "No, no, no, but wait." <laughs> so. It's a constant seeking for 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 the turning points that is pushing in some entity and, and, and creating creating a, a dynamic scene. Did you have to ask your wife permission to put the dinner sequence in your film? The thing with Sina is that she has been such a great part of of uh, my film since the Square. I mean, we were, we met when I started to work on the Square, and uh, she has such a stamina thinking and talking about ideas. We have spent at least 10,000 hours talking about Triangle of Sadness. And she have already given me so much about her knowledge about working in the fashion industry. Um, and uh, uh, when it came to the bill scene, uh, I think also she's a, she's a cool human being. She, mm-hmm. yeah. and she dares to expose herself. And I mean, if we don't dare to expose our failures, uh, I mean, it, for me, it's only about exposing my own failures. And uh, um, so, and I think also she, she understands like, I would say auto fiction, like it's, yeah. uh, it's, it's, it's not hundred percent how our life is. I watched it with my fiance and the second that started, I was like, we're going to have a conversation about it. And the second <laughs> the scene was over, she was like, we're equal, right? And I was like, yeah, I think we're pretty much 50-50. And she was like, okay, good. And then moved on. Okay, great. I, I was like, this is going to cause fucking hell with couples.
The same happened when I saw Force Majeure. I was reminded by my friends afterwards that when we had the London bombing, shortly after we were at the Tate Modern and the alarms went off and everyone had to evacuate. And I ran. I was like Jason Bourne going down the stairs <laughs> right out into the car park. And my friends were like, you were gone. You did not look back yeah. to see if... And I was like, I, I assumed you were behind me. And now like, assumed is the key word. You were yeah, <laughs> just like yeah. out the fire exit long before us. But I, I was looking into statistics when it comes to ferry catastrophes. And I mean, I think that we have a very strong idea about like the men would sacrifice themselves for the wives and the kids. Uh, but if you look at statistics, the one that really survives is is men in a certain age and the one that dies are women and children. Uh, oh, wow. So, so when it comes to survival instincts, it's interesting because culture is put out mm -hmm. when survival instincts is put in. And I heard an interesting example about this it was a catastrophe on a on a ship in south korea where it was a teacher that had been there with his students and when the catastrophe happened he abandoned his uh, students he, fl he flew fled in with like with within a uh, survival instinct of course and he survived uh, but a lot of his students died and afterwards he couldn't deal with the uh, with the guilt. He couldn't deal with the shame. So he committed suicide. Mm -hmm. I think it's, it points out something about us human beings, that in one moment, survival instinct is saving us, and in the next moment, culture is stronger than survival instinct. Wow, so yeah. Shame makes us commit suicide. Uh, so that must be something very specific and, and extraordinary, uh, how to say, um, odd when it comes to uh to living species and were you filming on a boat for the cruise was that an actual boat you shot on yes we were filming on uh, actually onassis yacht um yeah onassis was uh one of the richest people in the world uh during the 60s and the 70s he was a greek uh, he owned uh, shipping companies and on onassis yacht Churchill was there, Kennedy was there, Merlin Monroe, Maria Callas, uh, like the creme de la creme of the Western elite during the 60s. So we had nine days of shooting on this, this yacht when we did the film. And how was it? I, I read you guys were halted two or three times during COVID. Yeah, we had, we had two uh, stops in the production. So the first one basically happened after we had shot uh, the, we had just started to shoot uh, the storm on the gimbal in the studio because we had built the set on a gimbal. And uh, uh, we were waiting for if we should go and shoot the part with Wood Harrison or if yeah. we should set the, the, the shooting on hold. And we, we, we had to put the shooting on hold. And then when we started up the production again, you know, it's interesting with Sweden because Sweden is not a corrupt country at all. And uh, we were starting up the production again in order to shoot those 10 days that we needed with Woody Harrison. Uh, but then we have the problem of like that every single, uh, how to say, person working in, with, in the toll, in the, in the customs, 
Yeah. They have the right to say no or yes to everybody going into Sweden. So it didn't matter what, what letters or whatever we had and give to Woody Harrison when it came to uh, was going through the customs. Uh, we, we were still dependent on like that this uh, 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 individual working in the customs would, would let him in. So it was like a couple of these moments in the production where, where there was a lot of money that we were risking. Uh, and then also the thing that we were shooting on the yacht, uh, then it, it came closer and closer to a, a, block, a lockdown in Greece. And uh, we, on the day where we stopped, we had finished the last day. We was we were so lucky because we would never be able to to rent that yacht again if uh, if we had to uh, do the lockdown earlier. Were you close to giving up at any point? How did you keep your head and keep on coming back to finish the film? I don't know. I mean, I think I own the production company together with one of my best friends, that is the producer. Uh, so we have put in a lot of money ourselves. Not, but like, I mean, we are working on our project, so we don't sure. we don't take out that that uh, big part of the salary. We, we put in part of our salary as investment in the project, and we we have been working with this production company for twenty years. So it's also something that. I, I think that if we didn't finish the film, it would probably be bankrupt, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, so I didn't really f- feel that we even considered the choice of uh, uh, not finishing the, uh, the production. Your lead actor, Harris Dickinson, was on the previous episode of the podcast. And he mentioned you do up to 30 takes. Mm. So I was curious... What's your method behind so many takes? I know Kubrick used to say he'd like to explore every possible way of doing the scene, mm. every way of delivering the dialogue, etc. For for me, when I when I write the script, I have a kind of a sociological approach to the content. So so I I want to believe in what I see, and. Uh, as soon as you are trying to visualize what you have in the script, you will meet a lot of problems because there are things that you have not thought about. There are things that are going to occur only when you put up the camera. And uh, uh, therefore, like I need the start of the shooting day to invest the scene with actors and asking them, is it possible for you to say what it says in the script? Or does it feel, as a human being, does it feel strange? Does it feel like uh, constructed? And uh, or is it possible to do what it says in the script? And then when they, if they say no, um, and then we can change the setup a little bit uh, in order so it becomes possible for them. Because uh, for me, like that part of the shooting, you know, that's really, really when you shape the tone of your style. That like, okay. Uh, this is how you're really managing to get the style. I don't want the style to be only from from the script. I want it also to be how I'm maneuvering things when I'm shooting. And uh, in the beginning of the day, we try out with improvisations where they are supposed to go from this starting point to that flag to that flag and then end up there. Uh, and then when we have found something, like something that we think is unique, because you try to find an an, an a perspective of scenes that you have never seen before or mm-hmm. that is playing out in a different way that you have seen before. That's the only time I get interested. 
And it's kind of hard to find that sometimes so, because all of us have a convention in our backbone. So we are trying to play out maybe our expectation on things. And then you have to say, okay, but maybe we, maybe we can approach this fight by now you being super nice, but just saying the same lines. Or, and then all of a sudden you find something that feels true, but also from a perspective or in a way that you have not seen before. And then it's like, wow, there it is. And it takes time to reach that point every day. And then what I do when, when you reach that point, then you feel safe and then you start to repeat over and over again and mm -hmm. trying to sculpture the scene. And in the end, I go like, okay, everybody, five takes left. And then I do a countdown. Four takes left, come on now. Three takes left. And now it's about like those last five takes is very, often very similar. Right. And what I do then is like that, that I gather the whole film team around the camera when I do the last three takes because I want everybody on set giving the actors maximum attention. And uh, so it's an important football game that we're playing here together. Right. And now when I'm doing the last take, I've also started to do like this, that I, I brought the gong to the set. <laughs> <laughs> so to create even more presence, you know, I hit the gong and I don't say action after that. I, I go like, bong. And in that silence, when then you have given one of the actors the cue to start the scene. And to create a vibrating presence. And like now we are creating the moment that is worth saving and bringing it to the editing. Because the unique thing with the camera is that you can, you can save an amount of time. And if you're going to do that, of course you want that amount of time to be unique. So what takes would you use? Would it be one of those final takes? Do you think that would really be the moment where something new or fresh would come out of that you know i came from ski film background you know and and you know when a skier is going down a mountainside and it's yeah. there's always a danger uh, involved in some way and especially if they are skiing powder and it's a untracked field there's a risk for for an avalanche it creates a certain kind of focus and presence from everybody that is yes. around at that moment I'm trying to do the same thing with actors. They have to play like this is life and death. This is a world championship football game and who is going to win it? We are going to win it together, of course. What happens often when I do the last five takes is that the second last is the best one. Because when we get to the last one, they are pushing a little bit too much. Right. And then it becomes, yeah, so, so then they're overdoing it. Uh, uh, and it's very, it very interesting phenomenon. How is it for actors to get onto that? into your style of working? Different from different actors. And I, I, I spend a lot of time to try to explain to them, this is how I want to work. And of course, I don't work like this in every single shot because sometimes you do a pickup. But always when I do the master of the scene, I try to work in this way. Yes. And uh, everybody says, ah, I understand. I love this idea about working in this way, even though the first day on set is a shock. Because they are, they are giving away too much in the beginning. They are pushing a little bit too much in the be beginning. So then they are very tired in the end. Right. And what I want them to do is to, to try to save some energy in the beginning. Save some energy. Save some energy. Because it's, it's the end of, this, uh, of the takes that I want you to explore. And that's what I want you to like perform. So, but but in, as I 
I don't think I've had any experience of someone like definitely don't want to work in this way. Everybody have adapted to it and uh, enjoy it and uh, yeah, feel, it feels that it makes sense. Was there any films you were giving the actors to watch as homework in preparation for the film? No, but actually I asked, uh, someone asked me what, what book they should read and I, I had just read a book about Andrea Agassi, the tennis player. Right. Open is the book called. And it's like, it's a very interesting book about his career as a tennis player. And he, he hated to be a tennis player. You know, he hated tennis. Really? Yeah, but he loved, he, he hated win, uh, losing even more. So, <laughs> and, but he had a moment in, in, in his career that I think is, could be a moment in one of my movies. You know, it, he started to lose his hair when uh, when he was playing tennis and when he was quite young and so much of his brand was connected to his haircuts yeah it was a wig wasn't it exactly so when he was when he was playing french the final in french uh, open uh he had a wig and uh and the glue that he uses to put the wig on his head uh, didn't work they didn't, I don't think they ran out of glue or something like that. And they have to put it um, with some kind of needles. They had to fix it to his hair. So he's going out and he has a whole like media uh, world that have been very harsh on him because they have said he's vain. He's like, you know, he's only a, a branded tennis player that is like selling products and so on. So he always had to prove himself as a tennis player in order to get the respect. And he's going out to play Paris Open with this wig that he doesn't trust it, it uh, <laughs> that it will stay there and uh, in front of the eyes of the world. And it's something about the fear of losing face in that situation. Uh, that is, of course, the stakes are high. He's dealing with something that is tough for him at that point. Mm-hmm. And of course, he, was not, he didn't care if he would win the game. He write in this book. Only he cared about, let, please, God, let the wig stay on my head. But that, I think it's a very honest and open book about someone n- not being afraid of exposing sides of, of, of himself that he sh- should be ashamed of and so on. And therefore, he also becomes very human and you get a lot of sympathy for him. And I often ask my actors that they should expose a lot of like our ridiculous sides when we fail when we don't live up to being great humans and then you you have to you have to remind them that it's when you do these things that you also open up for other human beings to actually connect to you um, and sometimes you have to give them an example to to remind them like that so so the, the Agassi Andre Agassi book was I used in that way a little bit okay this has been great it's been such a pleasure talking to you I'm such a fan of your work Thank you so much. Thank you. Can't wait to see what you do next. Keep up the good work. Thank you. Okay. Have a good time. Thank you, sir. Take care. Bye. Told you that was good. That was me and Ruben talking. Triangle of Sadness is out now. Thanks again to our friends at Curzon Film. 
for setting that up. My producer is Flynn Rodham. Music by Telephone Tel Aviv, a.k.a. Joshua Eustace. And that's it. Thank you for listening, and we will speak soon.